Hey, 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 welcome to Truth Be Told. I'm Tanya Mosley. How have you guys been? I've missed you so much. I am stepping into your timeline to share a live taping of the show we recorded in Pasadena, California on August 31st with some of the show's most dynamic wise ones. We were hosted by The LAist, Los Angeles's NPR station at the Crawford Theater. And let me tell you, it was a party, okay? The event was broken up into two parts. Outside, we had DJ Kara on the turntables and D Lo's Kitchen, which is a Cajun restaurant in LA owned by Dijon Orange. I'm not trying to be whatever, but you really haven't lived until you tasted his Cajun lobster crab and shrimp enchiladas. I mean, ah, glorious. Well, outside was definitely a vibe, but inside is where the magic happened. In this episode, you'll hear from award-winning author Nancy Red, FX's Poses creator Stephen Canals, documentary filmmaker Aize Jama Everett, and writer Jamila Lemieux. Oh, and stick around for part two with the Casey Gerald. Well, we kicked off the program on the topic of divesting from perfectionism. Oh, what a topic. It is a big one. And Nancy and Stephen explored with me the idea of overachievement as a trauma response. I hope you enjoy it. Nancy, I met you at NPR West. I think it was like two weeks before the pandemic. We had no idea what was going on. We had no idea. We were living our best life. But you were coming in to promote your book. You were on another show. And the moment I saw you, I know a perfectionist when I see one. I was like, okay, she's like one of us. She's one of me. And I was just really struck by, you're beautiful. You have a successful career. You have a wonderful family. Everything seems perfect for you. And then we got on the phone the other day, and I said, tell me what's on your mind. You know, we're going to be sitting on a stage. And you said divesting from perfectionism. Tell me what led you to that realization in this moment that you're in. We don't have time for the whole story. (laughs) (laughs) But safe to say, after the past few years, raise your hand if you're just exhausted. You're just exhausted. And it really gives you an opportunity, all of this time at home, to really take stock of what matters. And then when you get back in the world, and you're faced with a lot of the same stuff from before, you just don't have the patience for it. So a lot, we've talked a lot, and I'm sure you've talked a lot about how that comfort of home, for those who have spent, those including myself and my family, we spend a lot of time being perfect, being, being acceptable, so we can get in the room and be that one, which again, asterisk, there's so many. <laughs> when you can just let it all hang out and be on the Zoom with no pants. And I, I like, <laughs> and like when I do my hair and my makeup, I don't have to put on four layers. I don't even have to take out the braids in my back. I just let out the front <laughs> and I'm good to go. And I put my bonnet right back on as soon as that Zoom is off. And then to get back in the world and try to do the, 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 the dog and pony show that I did for so long was just very exhausting. And on top of that, a, a few very pivotal experiences happened to me in the last 18 months that I finally had to put big girl panties on and grow up. And, I, and these are things I couldn't perfectionist away. My mother became extraordinarily ill. Mm. And as we know, we've all had people in our life who've gotten ill and there's nothing you can do. There's no resume. 
debt will save that situation. There's no politeness and no lipstick shade that will overcome that hump. And so at the right page of 42, which we share many things in common, I learned that I, I have to be more realistic with myself and and stop. Stephen, you said something really great in your Truth Be Told interview when it was about inviting people and, and, and bringing people to your space and, and asking them if they're reticent about who you actually are is how well do you want to know me, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I loved that so much. And I think that when faced with perfectionism, it's important to ask one a question of themselves. How well do I want to know who I actually am? Yeah. And that's been a difficult journey for me that I've kind of just begun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like really sitting in that space of you figuring out who am I really. For so many of us, what comes for me, I interviewed Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, and I read her book and like so much of it resonated with me so deeply. But then in our conversation, she just said very, very casually, you know, yes, because overachievement is a trauma response. It was such an obvious thing that it knocked me off my feet. And Stephen, I just want to know for you, when you hear that term, that, that overachievement is a trauma response, what does that bring up for you? When I was applying to UCLA's MFA program in screenwriting, we, there were a series of texts that we were required to, to read. And one of them is Bird by Bird, written by Anne Lamott. Yeah. And there's, an, I, I don't, this isn't a direct quote, but she says some version of, Perfectionism is the language of the oppressor. And that's the first thing that comes to mind for me when I think of mm. what Tarana said to you. Say more about that. Well, I think that in my 42 years, <laughs> 43 in two weeks, Virgo. I come on, Virgo, know all about perfectionism. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I have learned, though, in, in my 42 years is that perfectionism would have me believe that my best isn't good enough. Okay. And I've had to learn how to quiet that voice that has, is really just noise that tells me work harder. You know, that voice that says what I've done that is really great, yeah. whether it is my investment in my relationships with people, whether it is my work on the page, whether it is my work behind the camera as a director, that my best isn't me phoning it in. My best isn't lazy. My best is my best. And yeah. that's good. Yeah. That's good enough. What got you there, though? I mean, you read that quote, but like that takes work to sit in that space when all your life you've been running in this way. Exhaustion and burnout. Yeah. You know, I think the reality is I'm, I'm hearing a lot of mm, so I'm sure everyone understands this is that I think perfectionism starts to eat away at you. You know, when I was 40, 39, 40, I got really sick. You know, perfectionism impacted my body. And I had to pay attention to what my body was telling me, which is to slow down and yeah. to take care of yourself. And that was really difficult because, as you pointed out, I think, especially working in an industry that is very white, very straight, very male, very cis, and I don't check a couple of those boxes, I have to be perfect, you know? Like, I have to be 10 times better than my contemporaries. Yeah. And the reality is that it takes a toll physically and mentally. Yeah. And it's not worth it. Nancy, though, do you, you're in this space now where you're trying to divest from perfectionism. 
Do you feel fear though around not doing your best? Cause I do. I mean, like, oh my gosh, like I just have anxiety even thinking about like not going the extra mile. I have more fear of not giving this a shot because this is untenable. Mm. So I think what has happened in the last few years, and again, we're so symbiotic. We're we're like the same person with different lives. Uh, Because perfection, what I actually said to you on the phone was, which came out of nowhere, like literally blurted out. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I was like, perfectionism is what got us here, but it's also what's going to kill us. Yes. And so, but isn't, but the complicated thing is I'm proud of where I've gotten and I'm grateful for the, the fortune to get to be a perfectionist. Not everybody has the ability to, to spark that in them. They don't have the support system. They don't have the opportunities. So I, I don't regret it. And so the idea that perfectionism, what, was, what did you say at the beginning? I believe you said the myth that perfectionism will, will, will save, will save us. us. Yeah, and- I think it's a half myth. So, and, and that's black the, excellence, the in black particular. excellence in particular, and it's complicated because black excellence of our of our of our forefathers and our ancestors is what the, the it, it it killed them, right? It, like we're we're growing on the bodies of tons mm. and tons of black excellence, mm. and without the black excellence behind us, we wouldn't even be able to be here. So I am giving it a shot. I'm only half-assing the lack of perfectionism. <laughs> And we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Can I say, though, I don't, whether we're talking about black excellence or just excellence, I don't know that we, we don't decide that, though. I think it's decided separate and apart from us. Right. You know, immediately I think about my work on Pose where it's like, I was just creating a show. Yep. You know, other people put their investment and their energy and decided how important it is and decided to elevate it. I had nothing to do with that. That's kind and of like what st- we were talking about with Keith Haring earlier. You know, Keith Haring, Basquiat, all the things. Who decides what is What excellent? is good. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, in particular with Pose, the story behind even getting that made, I mean, it's it just so... I think you said something like, how many, how many folks did you meet with how many no's did you get? 161. Right. <laughs> yes. And it was one person who was your champion that actually made it happen for you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it was that one person, Sherry Marsh, who said, this is more than a sample. This is a show. We're going to get this made. Yeah. The thing about Pose, Pose uh, at the time that it came out a few years ago was so tremendous. It was so groundbreaking. It was so nuanced and deep. It was just the perfect thing for the moment. And now several years later, we're here. We're LGBTQ rights all across the country. We're fighting for it. They're being taken away. I just want to know, are you feeling that shift in Hollywood? (laughs) I'll give you a little out because I'm feeling it. In my day-to-day work, I think everyone in every industry is feeling a sea change. There have been incremental gains, for sure. I would never deny that. I'll put it to you this way. On Pose, Michaela J. Rodriguez, Afro-Puerto Rican trans woman, was number one on our call sheet. Since the show has gone off the air, sitting here today, I cannot name another show where there is a black or brown trans woman who is number one on the call sheet. 
And so, sure, I could rattle off all of the stats that GLAD graciously compiles every year in their Where We Are on TV report. And I'll say, yeah, there have been gains. We're seeing more queer, trans, non-binary folks occupy space in television. And yet, that doesn't feel like it's enough for me. Yeah. You know, I, I have a hard time patting myself on the back when I think about the work that I did on Pose with all of my co-conspirators. When I look out at the television landscape and I'm not seeing a plethora of queer and trans narratives. Yeah. You know, we're kind of one of the only. And at this point, again, if you look at the statistics, all of those shows that have queer and trans people, that show is not explicitly about those individual characters. It's not about their life. It's not about their lived experience. They just happen to be there. Mm -hmm. And so if tokenizing black lives, brown lives, queer and trans lives is what you're into, great. That's perfect for you. It isn't enough for me. Yeah. So both of you are on this journey now, especially you, Nancy, of divesting from perfectionism. But it's a process. It's not an overnight thing. Where are you taking this in your work as you move forward? I know that we are at a standstill with the strikes. But when you change as a person, when, when you are not subscribing to this kind of thing anymore, it's going to change the way you work. It's going to change the way you move. I love that because for me, the the... Yes, I have lots of different works. We were joking offline. I have like, I guess I have 15 jobs. I have so many different jobs. But the number one job I have, it sounds cliche, but it is to be a parent. And the best thing that has come from the very difficult 18 months I've been through is I'm breaking the cycle with my own children. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband and I both went to Harvard, you know, for when we, before we had children, we got the little Harvard onesie. You know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, we do of all course. that. And let me tell you, we have these conversations. We're really listening to our kid. And with my oldest in particular, I remember we had these very intense conversations at dinner. And we had planned in advance to do this because we are still perfectionists. We said, and we had this conversation. We said, you know, we don't care where you go to college. And if you don't want to go to college, that is totally fine. Mm. You do what works for you. I hear somebody laugh and just like, you don't believe that. I do believe that. (laughs) Or at least I'm going to fake it till I make it. (laughs) Okay, can I just say, though, I mean, you know, being out in the world and I'm not, you know, of course, this is not a stereotype. But I have found it to be that white families are more likely to be that way with their kids. And it's just sort of a newer phenomenon for black folks to be like, you don't have to go to the best college. You don't even have to get all A's. Sued. (laughs) Yes. And but my son, I didn't even know he was caring attention because he literally was just like. Well, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to college for for a semester. Right, he's or like, two. Dad, Mom, don't be too crazy. Yeah, no, I'm that's going great. to college. Maybe yes. it was reverse psychology. Exactly. But I'm proud. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> that would make me happy. No, but I'm really excited about these conversations and that, to know that and let them know that we we trust you. You can come up with your own path. You know, we are doing the best we can, especially with my oldest. We always tell him we apologize for any mistakes that we have made yes. because you are first and you're rolling through this with us. I love it. Yes. <laughs> so, so it's, I really have enjoyed this. It's yeah. taking a lot of stress off of my husband and I. We shall see what fruit it bears. Right. <laughs> it's an experiment. We're going to see. Stephen, how is it? How is this as you move through now? 
and these steps that you're taking in your life? How is it going to impact your work in your life? I feel like I'm, I'm walking with more clarity, which is nice. I feel like my, we were talking about this backstage. I think my twenties and my thirties were riddled with deep ambition you know, in high school, I was vote, the superlative that I was voted was by any means necessary, most ambitious. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, it. <laughs> yeah. That's that sounds like you, though. And uh, I think I've let some of that energy go. Mm. You know, I feel like I can breathe. Mm-hmm. I think that to go back to your first question about the strike, I think that's been one of the benefits of this what for me, particularly in the last two and a half years since Pose ended, has been what I would call a fallow period. Yeah. I feel like I'm finally getting reacquainted with myself and with my art. <sighs> I think that I had forgotten the love of the craft, yep. you know, and it felt like I was just sort of walking by, like walking through space and time idly and not quite yeah. stopping to just take a break and assess and appreciate where I'm at. Yeah. And though the strike is terrible and I wish it was over the the beauty and the benefit of this moment for me has been to say why do I tell story what are the stories that I want to tell you know what is living in my heart what is in the back of my throat that needs to be said loudly and proudly and I don't know that I would have been able to get to that place had I not stopped that's right Stephen Canals and Nancy Red, thank you both so much. Thank you for having thank you. us. <laughs> A few years ago, I kept getting these Instagram ads for Factor Meals, and they looked pretty good, so I decided to give them a try. My schedule was absolutely bananas back then. I had no time to cook. And doing takeout several times a week felt like I was basically throwing money out of the window. And of course, you know takeout is not healthy every day. So Factor Meals seem like a good option. They're fresh, never frozen. They take about two minutes to heat up. And what was great for me is that they taste like elevated home-cooked meals. Just one step above what I could do in my own kitchen. So I ate most of them for lunch. But Factor also offers breakfast, dinner, snacks, and smoothies that are all dietitian approved. And they're options if you're following keto or calorie smart or protein plus. Now, for you, our listener, Factor is offering you a chance to check them out. Head to factormeals.com slash Tanya50 and use code Tanya50 to get 50% off. That's code Tanya50, T-O-N-Y-A 50, at factormeals.com, Tanya50, to get 50% off. Okay, let's return to my live studio audience conversation in Pasadena, California at the LAist's Crawford Theater. Part two is a conversation with documentary filmmaker Aize Jama Everett and writer Jamila Lemieux. I posed this question to them. What do you do when you can no longer keep running from your pain by overworking yourself? How do you slow down enough to feel, acknowledge, and understand the hurt and use it as fuel? All right, my next guests... Jamila Lemieux and Aize Jamar Everett. (laughs) 
welcome both of you. Thank Hi. you. So we were talking about perfectionism with my last guests, and I wanted to talk with both of you all about something else, and that is when and what do you do when you're just tired of running and you're tired of performing this thing? And what do you do when you start to feel? Because when you stop running, when you stop like overcompensating and overachieving, then you're like in that space that Stephen just talked about where now he could feel, now it's quiet. And Jamila, you and I were on the phone. I was on the phone with everybody, I guess. But we were on the phone, and I was talking to you about where you are in your life. And, you know, I've, I've admired you for so long. The last decade, I would even say 15 years, you've been killing it. I mean, with your writing, with your television and radio appearances and live appearances, I mean, you've just been speaking truth to power in such a profound way. And so I was very excited to hear from you where you are. And you said, I'm kind of like in no man's land. Like, I don't know what my next steps are. Tell me where you are in this moment and why that is. I had a vibrant, thriving career in media for some years, you know, and I was always running, always ripping and running, always had a suitcase, always working, you know, spending a lot of time away from my child. And then something sort of happened around 2019. Well, one, I moved to L.A. and I moved from New York where I had this very vibrant kind of fly life to a place where I didn't know hardly anyone. And, you know, everything just slowed down and then the pandemic happened and everything just stopped. So all the things I could take for granted, like speaking engagements and opportunities to get on the road just dried up. And I'm in a period now where I'm sort of at a crossroads in my career and I have to figure out what do I do next? You know, like some of the things I did in the past don't really work anymore. I was big on Twitter. There's no more Twitter, yep. you know? <laughs> Twitter made a lot of money for me. It was great, yeah, yeah. you know, but, but it is a non-factor at this point. So I'm really just having to sit still and figure out what is it that I would want to do. And, and I bet it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean... There's another component to this, too, because you're writing a memoir. Yeah. And so you're in this space where you're not sure where you're going next. You're sitting in this quiet, but you're also sitting with your thoughts and you're sitting with yourself. That's pretty. That's a that is. Woo, that's a that's a place to be in. Right. It can be overwhelming. Yeah. You know, something I've come to realize in this past year is that I don't know myself as well as I thought I did, you know? And I think most of us think we are the expert on ourselves. We know ourselves so well. But I just realized there was just so much about myself I hadn't interrogated, so much I hadn't thought about and considered, you know? And just really trying to figure out, like, who I am as I tell this story, you know? I know the part of my story, the parts of my story that are interesting and made a publisher interested in acquiring the book, you know, like I got the tea, I get it, yeah. you know what I mean? But also like, who am I as a woman? Yeah. You know, who am I to put this work out in yeah. the first place? Yeah. 
I use a right before we came on there, we had the video up talking about truth be told. And there was a quote from you in there where you said, you know, I suffered from that black male thing where I'm just running. I am always running. And then you get to this moment where you stop. And when you stop, then you have to let the hurt in. You've been where Jamila has been many times, I'm guessing, but you've also worked through it. Yeah. But like once you get to that point, like how did you move through it? I let it hurt. <clears throat> Didn't run from the hurt. I mean, I can say psychedelics, which is like a lot of what I utilize to look at myself in the mirror and, and get to know myself. But the lessons that it gave me was like, you know, you know you're going to die at some point. And if I'm going to die at some point, even the pain is a gift. Yeah. Right. And so if I can take the pain as a gift, then nothing can stop me. You know, it's just, okay, thank you. Thank you for that lesson. Thank you for that knowledge. Thank you for that feeling. I don't like that feeling, but thank you for that. <laughs> you know, like, you just, like, I just, it's like, there's going to be stumbles. There's going to be breaks. Like, no, like, somebody was telling me about something, and they're like, yeah, it's so hard. And I was like, yeah, who promised you easy? Yeah. Like, who? what in this life is supposed to be easy? It's going to be a grind. But when you get it done, it's all the more valuable because it wasn't easy. You were on season five of Truth Be Told talking about psychedelic therapy with me, both in the recreational sense and in the therapeutic sense. As can, a, can, I, can I just yeah. pick up that thing? I think as African-Americans in this country, black people in this country, our recreation is therapeutic. Yes. And there's this divide that the clinical models tend to put out there that like, well, you know, that, but like. Say if, more what you mean, though, when you say like our recreation is therapeutic. Man, black joy is healing. It is so much fun. I'm a writer as well. And I made a commitment. I do not write trauma porn. I, you ain't going right. to hear about the worst parts of my life. You're going to hear about the best parts of my life. You're going to hear about the people that I love. You're going to hear about the people that supported me. You're going to hear about the jokes we told, you know, <laughs> freaking everything. Like, I'm not. I'm not, it, Hollywood, I mean, no offense to Hollywood, I mean, it's Hollywood or whatever. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, this, this industry, they, they will put black trauma on screen, on camera, in audio, like, till the cows yeah. come home. But if you have five black men enjoying themselves on a corner, I promise you the police will be called in 2.3 seconds. Yes, yes. What's that yes. about? You yeah. know what I mean? So I'm like, my commitment to black joy is eternal and like prevalent. <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering, Jamila, when you hear when you hear Aize say like he's not going to put, you know, the bad things that happened to him in a book. Part of that, though, is contending with the things, though, before you can actually access and get to that. Mm -hmm. Writing a memoir and getting to the deepest parts of yourself. How much of a challenge is that for you to like feel and access that? Because like you're probably touching on a lot of the, the deep stuff as you're getting through your memoir. It's incredibly difficult, you know. Interestingly enough, I think I got through some of the tough stuff early on. Like in the earliest days of writing the book, the stuff that came out the quickest was the traumatic stuff. You know, I expected it to be otherwise. I have some happy memories that are hard for me to look back on that I'm struggling to write about, you know, like, but the, the difficult stuff kind of just... It came out pretty quickly. So I was fortunate about that. And I'm lucky that I have a great therapist and we meet once a week, <laughs> you yes. know, and I have someone to, yeah, like talk to about sharing these difficult experiences. Yeah. 
You know, the thing about, so if anyone has listened to season five of Truth Be Told, you do know that I went on my own psychedelic journey traveling to Jamaica for therapeutic purposes. But I'm, a, I'm now that you have said, like, I'm going to stop, like, delineating between, like, therapy, what therapy, like, just the whole definition of therapy. But it was a life-changing experience because I was able to see myself and that whole thing that we talk about, about, like, seeing your trauma without being re-traumatized and being able to contextualize it. But I use a, like, what has happened since then, because it's been a year, is that wow, I'm seeing so many parts of myself and actually seeing parts of myself from other vantage points that maybe years ago I was very defensive about. Maybe I even had conflicts with people about these parts of myself and now I could see it from their perspective. The challenge in that is that you're constantly assessing yourself. And I want to know, had that been at any point a challenge for you? Because I'm kind of sick of myself, you know? <laughs> but are you kind to yourself? Ooh. Do you allow yourself to make mistakes? Mm. See, I don't have the disease that y'all have. I have never been a perfectionist. <laughs> I, like, like, no offense. <laughs> like, I mean, and, you know, like I used to, I mean. But I, I, mm, I challenge that with you because, like, I didn't even go through your entire like bio, you have like multiple degrees. Mm -hmm. You have done so many different things. You've mm -hmm. had like 10 different careers. Mm -hmm. Like you were always striving. Mm -hmm. And I've screwed up in every single one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I have messed up constantly. I have, I mean, I've been, I've been, I was a drug and alcohol rehab therapist and I ran a, a clinic in, in Oakland at 50 kids sleeping there. And one time I saw, I thought I saw one kid run around the corner at two in the morning. I woke the entire house up. Yes. And I was like, who's running around? Who's doing that? Do you understand? I could have caused a riot. Yes. Like, yes. I could have lost my life from that thing. Yes. Right? Kids could have bounced out. Right? Yes. I've messed up. I mean, I've messed up all the time. What's been the, my saving grace is that I have felt the spirit of forgiveness mm. descend upon me again and again and again. You mean being forgiving of yourself? No, I mean feeling the spirit of forgiveness descending upon me and saying, it's okay. Mm. It's okay to make a mistake. Mm. You screwed up. Own that. If mm. you run from it, it's going to be bad. But if you own it, you screwed up, Isaac. Can you, can you say, I screwed up. All right. Now move forward. Because what's the worst thing that could happen? Do you fear about that? I, just, you, I stay in that screw up. Yeah. Right? Yep. Like if I if I if I held on to what I just told you about, right? Like waking up all his kids and screaming, you know, like, you know, I, I did not have my my I wasn't a therapist at that time. If I was like, okay, I'm not a good therapist because I did this one mistake. Right. Right? I wouldn't have been able to go to the next thing. When you for me at least, when I hold on to the hurt, I stay in the hurt. Mm -hmm. But when I allow that spirit of forgiveness to come into me, and more importantly, transfer it to other people, yep. we get to move forward. Thank you for that. Jamila, you know, being a truth teller as you as you have been for so many years, it comes it comes with being a target. And I know on social media, you were pretty prolific for a long time. And then there was a moment where you were like, I'm just not going to do it anymore. It was more than just Twitter becoming X. It was like, I'm just not going to going to engage. What has that meant for your mental health? 
I think it's been great for my mental health. You know, I'm not obsessively checking an app. I'm not pouring a lot of time into having conversations that were often, you know, coming from a bad faith place, even though I'm wanting to have discourse, you know, like I definitely got in the habit of sparring with people just to see how smart I felt. Yeah. You know, right. Like, yeah. Just the art of debating with people on the Internet and feeling like a winner. And there are no winners in the Internet debates. So, yeah, I mean, I miss it. You know, I miss the engagement. I miss, you know, how many people I interacted with during that time. But, you know, I don't really have a vision for what I want for myself from social media at this point. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't feel compelled by TikTok like I want to. But God, there's so many steps. So, you know, I feel I like know, a right? dinosaur. It takes a lot of work. Like. It takes a lot of work, you <laughs> yeah. know. But I do know that overwhelmingly it's been better for my mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I really want to get to an important point with you, Aize. You have a documentary, A Table of Our Own, which takes a look at psychedelic use for black people. But you also are doing, you're also in this space more broadly as well. And like one of the things that's been top of mind for you is like, the ability for folks since now it's becoming more and more of a thing that is above ground. And we probably will see elements of it regulated, legalized, like the unscrupulous nature of so many spaces. Like we were just even having a talk about someone who we both know who now has been accused of horrible things. And because it's an unregulated space, because, you know, people are trusting of other people, like some things can happen. So I just wanted to, very quickly, if you could just talk about the ways that you recommend people step into it. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think if folks are interested in, in psychedelics, I say plant medicine when I'm talking about this stuff. It's the same thing. Like if you have a grandma that ever wrapped a cabbage leaf around your head when you had a headache, it's in that vein. And if we start talking about psychedelics, when we start talking about Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and all these other folios that, you know... <laughs> You know, you know, you know how the 60s went. And it's that same thing, right? It's like this like white male corporate culture that says more, 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 faster, 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 now, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. And I've never seen that as a model of health. I think go at the speed of trust. Take your time. Go slow. They say the medicine calls you. If it calls you, take your time with it. You want to take some mushrooms? Why don't you try growing some mushrooms first, mm -hmm. right? Why don't you try take? Why don't you try talking with people about mushrooms? Why don't you talk about? Why don't you read about mushrooms? Why don't you talk to people who've already done them? Like you know, just there's a, you know what healthy speed is for you, and you also know what panic speed is for you. It doesn't make any sense to to go into this work in a sense of panic. Yeah, go in a speed of of. of just go slow. <laughs> go slow. Slow is healthy. Man, that sounds like a mantra for life. Like, go in the speed of trust. I love it. Aize Jama Everett and Jamila Lemieux, thank you both so much. thank APM Studios and the LAist for hosting us. You know, you guys really know how to put on a show. 
Also, thank you to Rachel Carlson, my producer who helped me put together this program. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation with the one and only Casey Gerald, author of There Will Be No Miracles Here. Casey was a wise one for season one of Truth Be Told, Family Ties. Casey and I will explore what it means to divest from respectability politics and notions of Black excellence. Until next time. 